0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I find something I'm curious about and uh, I learn it and teach it to you. I'm Melissa.
1: And I'm Everett.
0: So. I heard a story about this guy that we're doing the podcast on Paracelsus, mm-hmm. um, and like his story is very interesting, very cool. And I knew I wanted to learn more about him, but I have to admit that the you know fate was sealed when I learned his actual name. Mm. That was the one and only reason I needed to know more about this guy. But also, you know, he thought some cool stuff. Yeah. What is his name? His name is.
1: I mean, Paracelsus is also already a pretty cool name.
0: It's a cool name. How about
1: you tell us his full real birth
0: name? Birth name. Birth name. Yeah. Birth name. Philippus Aureolus Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim.
1: Hmm, it's a decent name. It's a really good name. He could get a few more words in there, but it might be overkill. But would they sound
0: so good together?
1: Probably not. But okay. Well, how about you teach me something?
0: I can do that. Um, okay, so first I just want to say that I find, I find him fascinating because he had so many beliefs, so many. So many. In so many fields. Okay. Um, and so many of them are rational and like ahead of his time and so many of them are magical and made up. So like... (laughs) It's crazy that one could think of these revolutionary thoughts on this hand, and then feed people poop on the other hand.
1: Is that literal? We'll talk or... about
0: that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was a literal example. Mm, okay. Yeah. Um, so he was born in 1493 in a Swiss village called Einselden, and oh, I spelled. I'm, I'm sure I said that wrong.
1: Sure. Okay.
0: Einsiedeln, something like that. Um. So, yeah, Philippus Ariolus Theophrastus Bombastus von, von Hohenheim was born. He had a kind of noble father. His father, Wilhelm sorry, Wilhelm mm-hmm. uh, was a German chemist and physician, an illegitimate descendant of the Swabian, Swabian noble uh, George Bombast von Hohenheim.
1: Okay, sure.
0: You know. One of those von Hohenheims. Oh,
1: one of those ones. Okay. And also
0: that's where they got the bombastus from, I guess. That makes sense. Bombast. Um, but his mother, uh, she was a, I don't even want to say peasant. She was like a bond servant or okay. so, or something. Matron. It's hard to tell exactly. Elsa Oxner. So she was Swiss. But yeah, was she in servitude or just very low class? Either way, she worked for the local hospital. Um, she died right after his birth. Hmm. So what I'm trying to say is he was kind of like a semi-surf. Okay. Because of his mother. Yeah. Unfortunately. Um, like, even when he died, the local church authorities that, I guess, had owned his mother's labor, like, claimed some of his stuff. <laughs> like, really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> parent, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, they kept track of things for a long time.
1: Well, sure. Yeah.
0: I Makes sense. It seems so weird. But being part of this class system and probably resenting it, um, you know, instead of on top of the class system, like most physicians of the day, Mm -hmm. is one reason that people suggest why Paracelsus was so rebellious and fought so hard against the system and the status quo, um, possibly. So he became interested in things like medicine, botany, herbs, that kind of stuff from his father. They used to go for long walks in the countryside where they lived in Austria, where they moved in 1502. Um, so his father was a practicing physician, but also directed the minds of the fuggers who are uh, like a wealthy family in this area that like owned everything. Um, so Paracelsus through this learned a lot about different minerals and like kind of mining diseases and diseases caused by inhalation of mercury and like arsenic and all these things. Um He worked in the Fuggers' silver mines in Schwarz, Austria, and in their chemical laboratory. Okay. So, yeah, he learned quite a lot from those things. And he kind of had a semi-formal religious education from the local clerics and convent schools. Um, so that's kind of his background. And then in 1509, he decides to go to the University of Vienna in Austria, of course, to learn arithmetic, music, astrology, and geometry.
1: All good things as well.
0: Well, you know, back in the day, you didn't just go for one thing. Like, you're no. a polymath. You had to know stuff about everything.
1: Yeah. I mean, that was definitely the popular trend at that time.
0: Yeah. So, a year later, he gets his baccalaureate degree in medicine. Then, in 1515 15, or 1516, he gets a doctorate in medicine from the University of Ferrara in Italy. Maybe there's one source that's like now. There's no records he ever enrolled there. Paracelsus liked to make himself up, so huh. I don't know. Who knows? Okay. Maybe he went to school. Maybe he didn't. It's not that important, honestly. Back in the day, it's not like we knew things for, me- for medicine. Okay, is what I'm trying yep. to say okay. for medicine. <laughs> sure. Um, and Paracelsus was known for his uh interesting personality. Let's say he wasn't a particularly likable person. Oh. He was intelligent and well-educated and deeply religious, and also unpredictable, stubborn, free-thinking, and independent and iconoclastic.
1: Hmm. Yeah, okay. He might rub some people the wrong way then.
0: Yeah, and he was aware of it. Like One of his quotes is, he says, I am different. Let this not upset you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, he studied a lot of t- different universities, uh, but he wasn't really impressed by them, which is kind of a thing in Parazelsus' life. He wasn't impressed by much
1: like Schneid. Twain. Oh,
0: don't say it. I wrote right here in brackets that, like, <laughs> <laughs> do not make Shania Twain reference here. It was too it was too tempting.
1: Yeah, it was easy.
0: <laughs> yes, nothing impressed him much. Um, he made all the other physicians angry because he insisted one should learn from what they observe and not rely entirely on authority, like ancient medical textbooks and yeah. what, what we think we already know. Uh, and, quote... My accusers complain that I have not entered the temple of knowledge through the right door. But which one is the truly legitimate door? Galen, Avicenna, or nature? I have entered through the door of nature. Her light, not the lamp of an apothecary's shop, has illuminated my way. Hmm. If someone said that today, we'd think they're really crazy. Yeah. But he was on to something. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So context matters, as I'm trying to say, about crazy things like, screw the establishment and textbooks. Yeah. And what other people know. I'm doing my own research. It's a different thing. Um, he also said, this is this is I think my favorite Paracelsus quote. Um, quote "I cannot figure out how the high colleges managed to produce so many high asses. That's, <laughs> that's also a good quote. That's not a swear word. He's just calling them all donkeys, donkeys. obviously. that's yep. what they use that word for. Of course, they're all donkeys. So not surprisingly, he gained a reputation for being arrogant. Mm,
1: um, a donkey himself, maybe. <laughs>
0: Okay, well let me tell you, let me t- let me ask you what you think about this if someone said this to your face. Quote, let me tell you this, every little hair on my neck knows more than you and all your scribes, and my shoe buckles are more learned than your Galen and Avicenna, and my beard has more experience than all your high colleges.
1: Um, yeah, I don't think I would take that very kindly, <laughs> personally.
0: You could rebut with what your beard knows.
1: That's true, but I don't have any scribes, so... It's tough.
0: Okay, fair enough. Um, he, you know, eventually thought that he knew better than all the people he'd studied under. Sure. Clearly from the above quote, all the people that came before him as well. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of where the name Paracelsus comes from. Uh, so he felt that he was following in the footsteps of Celsus. Okay. If, if you couldn't guess.
1: I mean, that makes sense.
0: To, to be fair, we're going to talk about an ancient Roma guy, so you really should be saying it Celsus, but Paracelsus sounds awful yeah so you know i found that since latin's a dead language people just say it however they want now to make it not sound awful yeah but in latin they didn't have a s- c sound right anyways he's a roman doctor and who was thought to be kind of a genius and um para is the latin prefix that's kind of like beyond or even beside but yeah yeah so he was comparing himself to celsus but In case you think that he was being super weird by, like, changing his name to a Latin name and being a weird guy, that wasn't a weird thing to do in Mm -hmm. the time. Um, It's kind of the norm to Latinize your name if you were in academia or whatever. Like, Carl Linnaeus was Carolus Linnaeus. Yeah. You know, like, they they all just kind of Latinize their name because Latin was the scholarly language, right?
1: Uh, Yeah, makes sense.
0: Yeah. So, now I'll start one of my lovely tangents I know everyone loves mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because we should learn about Celsus. Mm. Who well, I'm going to call Celsus because now we're in ancient Rome. Uh,
1: yeah. Yes, obviously.
0: So, <laughs> Aulus Cornelius Celsus, probably born around 25 BCE, um, was more known as being an encyclopedist. Oh, okay. Um, some dispute he was even a doctor. But his work that he's most known for is a medical work called D-medic... Well, it'd be Medicina, Medicina, mm-hmm. but Medicina is probably what...
1: Ooh, it sounds Cal- better nowadays, yeah.
0: Um, they, people believe that it's all, like the only surviving section of a much larger encyclopedia, though.
1: Oh, that um, makes sense, We sure. think
0: this because there's other Roman authors, for example, one named Quintilian, who says Calcis's encyclopedia included all sorts of literary matters like agriculture and law and rhetoric and military arts and stuff. So, um, it's probably more like a,
1: the only part that's been preserved or like, yeah. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so the D Medicina primarily contains information with like diet, pharmacy, surgery, but it's like one of the best sources of medical knowledge in the Roman world. That's what they all, they're like, this is the peak. Okay. Um, so it's divided into eight books, and in the introduction, or the proemium, um, he dis- discusses the relevance of theory to medicine, the pros and cons of animal experimentation, human experimentation, so he, like, goes into the philosophy
1: sure.
0: of medicine. Um, then in book one, he talks about the history of medicine, and he talks about, like, 80 different medical authors, like, many of which we've only heard of because of this one
1: Which would make book. sense, yeah.
0: Um. Yeah, then he goes into, you know, pathology, diseases, parts of the body, surgery. Um, so, but he was really, like, we still have things named after him in medicine. He was influential. So a lot of it is about skin disorders, like dermatology. Oh. Okay. Dermatology. So um myrmecia is something that he named and described. We call them plantar warts now. Okay. Um and there's also things he described that now we've named after him, basically. Um, so there's like Carrion Kelsi and Alopecia Kelsi, like different conditions like that, that yeah. the, the, you know, scientific version of the name has his name in it. Not the name that Not the, the doctor on. would yeah. probably use talking to people about, right. about it, right? Um, so his work has descriptions of symptoms and varieties of fever He's like the first that recorded the cardinal signs of inflammation. So that's the the calcist tetrad of inflammation. So there's calor, which is warmth. Mm -hmm. Dolor, which is pain. Tumor, which is swelling. Okay. And rubor, which is like redness. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, he's known for that. Um, He, perhaps ahead of his time, thought fever was the body's attempt to get rid of some cause. Um, And if you didn't interfere with it, the fever process would result in a state of health. So let's not mess things up even further like we okay. were, you know, often doing before we knew anything about medicine. Yeah. Um, there are occasions when he does recommend surgery uh, and bloodletting and purgatives, you know, the things that make come out the of you. Time, yeah. All of the, thing, the things you're supposed to do as a doctor in the time. Um, but you know, his recommendations on when and how to do those things were pretty similar to what we still use at the beginning of the 19th century.
1: Oh, well, that lasted a long time, then.
0: I don't want to, like, credit him so much as complain again about how bad we were at medicine for so long. We're like, eh, Greece and Romans, let's stop. Stop fixing it. Yeah. We'll just do what they did forever. Yeah. Um. <laughs> uh. So he... Writes about um, how to prepare a lot of, like, medicines, like opioids, and describes first century Roman surgical procedures, like cataract removal, bladder stone treatment, and fracture setting.
1: Okay.
0: Which, to be honest, I didn't even know they removed cataracts in ancient Rome. No. Maybe I did know that. Was it on sawbones? I don't know. Maybe. It sounds slightly familiar, but not super familiar, and also surprising.
1: It's definitely surprising Um, to me.
0: He wrote about the anatomy of the eye. He was the first one to call the eye layer choroid. The choroid. Right. Um, Hippocrates used the Greek word "karkinos" to refer to a malignant tumor, a carcinoma, which of course in Greek is crab.
1: Mm, sure.
0: Carcanos. Yes. And Calcis translated that term into the Latin cancer. Got it. Also meaning crab. Yeah. But yeah. We got that from Calcis. And uh, yeah, due to the invention of the printing press relatively recently in this time of history, uh, De Medicina was actually first published in 1478, right before Paracelsus was born.
1: Interesting. Which leads us back
0: to Paracelsus.
1: Perfect. Good tangent and then circular loop.
0: Yeah. Excellent. I'm sure you're all really excited about that Roman guy. Yeah. So Paracelsus, um, what he said was he was seeking a universal knowledge that wasn't found in books or faculties. So he wanted life experiences. Mm -hmm. He sets off traveling all over Europe in 1517. Um, According to his writings, he went to Spain, Portugal, Catalonia, England, Scotland, Ireland, Denmark, Prussia, Russia, Latvia, Poland, Hungary, the Netherlands, Croatia, Dalmatia, France, Sicily, Constantinople, Crete, Rhodes, and Alexandria.
1: That's everywhere around the Mediterranean. Uh, Well, except for Tunis, but...
0: Not just the Mediterranean. He was over in England.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Close-ish. Closer to the Mediterranean than we are.
0: Close? Oh, that's true. You probably have a technicality. I don't think closer than we are counts as close, though. It's like saying New York is close to the Mediterranean. It's closer than we are. sure
1: is. Much closer.
0: <laughs> so, basically, visit all these places to kind of investigate the art of healing and see how they did it there and... How the monks and the alchemists and the, Mm. you know, priests even, like, just the elderly. Just how did anyone do anything? And he was willing to just kind of sit back and watch and learn. Um, During his travels, he enlisted as an army surgeon and was in wars kind of on the side of Venice, Holland, Denmark, and the Tatars. Maybe. Okay. Taters. Tatars? How do you say it? I don't know. Tater just sounds like I'm... (laughs) precious
1: (laughs) precious
0: <laughs> i know but i'm watching lord of the rings right now so that probably doesn't help no probably not. um i don't know how you say i'm gonna say tatars because Tatars is gonna make me giggle okay um some sources say he was actually taken captive in russia by the tatars um and then most commonly it says that he then escaped other sources say he wasn't taken captive other sources say he was taken captive, but basically just became a favorite of the court. So he wasn't really a captive anymore, and they just took him on their travels. And that's actually how he made it to Constantinople. Oh, okay. That's uh, that's what some sources say. Sure. And in Constantinople, he found some opium. Oh. That's going to come up later. Okay. Yeah. So around 1524, he returns to Austria, where his father is still living. Um, he tries to establish a practice in Salzburg, and... Then has to soon run away to avoid his arrest because he participated in what's called the Peasants' Revolt. Hmm. Don't worry, I didn't tangent that one. I kind of wanted to, but we didn't have time.
1: Yeah, any time a revolt's not successful, you typically can't stay there.
0: (laughs) Especially when you're a peasant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So, Lynn, later he obtains citizenship in Strasbourg. I didn't know you had to obtain citizenship in smaller townships, but this is back before countries were whole... Big yeah, entities, so like, I guess that makes sense. Sure. Um, he begins writing, or begins writing um, a book called Opus Paramirum, teaching anatomy at the School of Surgery there. And then 1526, he was asked to come to a place called Basel in Switzerland.
1: Okay.
0: Um, by a famous publisher named Johannes Frobinius. Also, it's a pretty cool Latinized name. Hmm. Um, so some stories go, oh, I have an infected leg please come help me Paracelsus and then Paracelsus goes there and he cures him and saves his leg from amputation uh some stories are like no he died and some stories are like he died later and some stories are like he just came to this town yeah dude this guy didn't ask him to come so again this is a case of I don't know okay here's all the possibilities of what happened any of those things or some other things um but anyways Frobenius had a close friend named Erasmus um, as many were named in that time, I've realized Erasmus was a pretty popular name. But anyways, the story goes: Erasmus asked Paracelsus to heal his gout, and Erasmus was so impressed with him that he re- recommended him to be the new town physician.
1: Mm, okay.
0: Yeah, so he's appointed town physician. Huzzah! Is um, this a
1: he might have been appointed town physician, or he might have not, or the town may have died later, or.
0: No, this part, this part seems pretty solid because, okay. because along with this town physician job, you, it includes, if you're the town physician, you, you are now a professor at the University of Basel. Okay. Um, and the University of Basel taught medicine in the traditional Galenic humoral way, with humors yeah. medicine, which, which Paracelsus didn't believe in that. Um, and he thought the university's stubborn adherence to this stupid humoral theory, um, you know, proves they're outdated. And he needs to leave them behind and teach his own stuff. Um, because, you know, humoral theory relies on practices like purging and bloodletting to restore your f- four humors to equilibrium. And Paracelsus believed, let's use, you know, empirical work. All this new chemistry and anatomy stuff that's coming out and and. Like, do real things mm-hmm. instead. Okay. Um, so seems it, it, seems like a good idea. It sounds great, right? Yeah. Um, it sounds great. If the physicians wanted answers, uh, Paracelsus recommends to read the Book of Nature rather than only the texts of Galen. Hmm. The best of our popular physicians are the ones that do the least harm. But unfortunately, some poison their patients with mercury. Others purge them or bleed them to death. There are some who have learned so much that their learning has driven out all their common sense. And there are others who care a great deal more for their own profit than for the health of their patients.
1: Well, okay.
0: Not surprisingly, Paracelsus's colleagues didn't like him.
1: What? <laughs> they didn't like him they calling like them, them murderers for money, basically? Yeah. Oh, strange. Okay. It's
0: funny because he treats people with mercury. But anyways... Um, <laughs> less mercury. Mm, um, it's important. So even though he was a faculty member, they didn't give him any space to lecture. Because, yeah, they don't like him. Um, Paracelsus being Paracelsus, he did it anyways. He took on students and delivered lectures wherever he could around the city. Um, As a further dig at the medical establishment or kind of at all of academia, he gave his lectures not in Latin.
1: <sighs> the language of okay. all
0: scholarly works and universities and such but in German he actually believed common people deserve the same access to information as anyone else which was groundbreaking and again did not make him popular.
1: I'm surprised he lasted very long like like, in terms of being alive.
0: Cool thing about Paracelsus. (laughs) Hmm, Do you want to take some bets at what age he was when he died?
1: (laughs) huh Uh, interesting this is suggesting to me that he may not have been very old when he passed away
0: well maybe but i'll tell you what happened next okay is that he was forced to leave the city real quick
1: oh surprising
0: (laughs) he was there for less than a year
1: oh wow that's not at the university
0: no um so again sources differ some say it was a legal dispute about medical bills, which doesn't really make any sense considering that quote he said about medical bills. Like, why would he be so pressed to get his money back? Anyways, um, some say he was out of Basil because he threw a copy of Avicenna's Canon of Medicine into the St. John's Day bonfire. Oh. Um, he did like to do that. He burned books, yeah, which I don't love, but we'll, we'll talk about that a bit later. Um... Others say that this is when Johannes Frobenius died and people blame Paracelsus. Or they wanted him gone the whole time, but they couldn't have run him off until his ally Frobenius died. Um, There are many theories. But people didn't like him and he was driven out of town, is the summary. So then he goes to Nuremberg and he starts working as a physician again, but he kind of has to keep traveling around because he doesn't last anywhere very long. Sure. Um, And as he's traveling, he's writing. So... Uh, It's important to know that as he's leaving these different places, he's often leaving so quickly because he's upset someone or the whole town. And he's on the run and leaves his works behind.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Is what is often happening. Um, (laughs) I mean, how is he upsetting everyone? Quite so badly. Again, we've given a few examples. But... um, Yeah, he said, he said things like one time when he said the ignorant physicians are the servants of hell sent to torment the sick. You can see why other doctors weren't, um, his, his biggest fans. Yeah. He didn't just criticize medical practices though. He criticized the dogmatism of the Catholic church and the doctrines of Protestantism. He, here's where we get to the good part, he publicly burnt books of Hippocrates and Galen and Avicenna, all the things that had been standard medical theory for 15 centuries. Yeah, that's a long time. And would continue to be for, like, at least another three centuries. Because yeah. we are so bad MS. Yeah, wow. Um, he upset all the scholars and academics by continuing to lecture wherever he went in the common language and not in Latin. Um, you know, how dare he give all this information away to the pores?
1: All oh, them pores. Yeah. yeah.
0: So he's making the religious people mad and the academics mad and his colleagues mad. But he's still writing down ideas and theories and taking on like hundreds of years of, you know, medical knowledge. Um, Yeah. And then he's abandoning these papers and taking off somewhere new. Um, The reason I say this is because most of his works weren't published until after he died when they, you know, could have been collected.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, brought together into a collection. Sure.
0: So he died when he was 48 years old. Oh, okay. In uh, Salzburg, Austria, 1541, under suspicious circumstances, Hmm. but no one really knows.
1: (laughs) Right. Theme. I'm sensing a theme there.
0: People just think maybe someone offed him because he was so unlikable. Yeah. Yeah. But there's not a lot of evidence either way. Okay, fine. So, that was his life. But as you have noticed, we are not very far into this podcast.
1: Oh, so there's more to it then.
0: Unless you want me to be done.
1: No, but it did seem like a logical end point, you know, the end of his life. So how about you take us on another trip?
0: How much do you know yet, though, about his actual beliefs? Mm. You know, some things Not he much. doesn't believe.
1: And and how good he is at, you know, quipping himself? with people.
0: Oh, yes. You're talking about himself. Yeah. So, okay. His general theory of medicine here is is that... Okay, so it's based on four pillars. He explains in a book, the Opus Paragranum, which he wrote in 1530-ish. Um, one pillar is philosophy, which he describes as knowledge of nature. That is the elements, earth, and fire, mm. obviously. Okay. Uh, you have to know the second pillar, astronomy, mm. which is knowledge of the cosmos and the earth, which is elements, air, and fire, obviously. Oh. Um, Third pillar is knowledge of alchemy which is knowledge of the whole cosmos, knowledge of all four elements, you know?
1: Mm -hmm. Okay.
0: And then lastly, the last pillar is virtue of the physician, which he calls indispensable for fulfilling the other three pillars.
1: Interesting. Um, I don't think I relate very well to any of these pillars, but let's keep going.
0: Okay. I don't know. You like philosophy. I, I do. And astronomy, but not the way he uses it. Anyways... In his second major work, uh, the Opus Paramirum, which I mentioned, um, he wrote like a year later, he explains his belief that all diseases are rooted in what he calls the entia. Like plural for La- Latin, it's a Latin plural for essence. Anyways. Okay. Essences. He writes, please note, there are five entia creating and causing all disease. Do you know that there are five kinds of pestilence, not with respect to their nature, their entity, their form or shape, but with respect to their creation they may later express in any special kind. So there are five kinds of every disease.
1: Okay. okay. Or every thought. disease falls into one of the five kinds? Or there's five kinds of every disease?
0: Um, There are five kinds of every disease, is what he wrote.
1: Interesting. Okay.
0: He also said, I have to particularly emphasize that the diseases should not be treated as if they originated from the same source, but you have to apply the five entia in various methods, for no entia accepts the remedy of another. Hmm. A doctor, however, who does not understand this, is blind. So there are not only five causes for each disease, but also five different ways of healing and treatment. Interesting. Um, So he divides the five Entia into two groups. One group that affects the body, and one group that affects the mind. So on the physical level, there's the ons Astrorum, which is about the power and the nature of the stars and their influence on the body. So like environmental factors. Uh, the ons vanini about the effects of toxins like food and I guess your excretory organs fit under that one. Okay, sure. Uh, and the ons natural about the physical, just constitution. Okay. And then the mental level, there's the ons spiritual about the mental constitution and spirits that make us sick. Sure. And the ons de, de I, the influence of God. Yeah. Yeah. Destiny, karma, that kind of stuff fits in there. Okay. So, um medical beliefs. I've grouped together the things that I believe are more like medical as opposed to the next section, which is complementary medicine.
1: <laughs> Tangential medicine.
0: Yeah. So as I have alluded to several times today and in previous podcasts and a lot of times, but I'm going to going to go over it briefly. A long time ago, Hippocrates had this theory that illness was caused by imbalance of your four humors. Blood, phlegm, black bile, yellow bile. Then Galen, the Roman guy, comes along and develops this theory a little bit further into this, like, medical belief system that we had until the mid-1850s, at least. Um, And the dominant medical treatments in Paracelsus' time for balancing your humors were, you know, specific diets, purging, bloodletting, those kind of things. Um, Paracelsus instead believed that illness was a result of the body being attacked by outside agents.
1: Okay. Interesting. Which again, I
0: think like that sounds good, right? Yeah. But just wait. (laughs) Mm. So he objected to the excessive bloodletting and he said that bloodletting disturbed the harmony of the system and that blood can't be purified by just lessening its quantity. That's dumb.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Logical point.
0: So he wrote something called the Grossen uh, Wundersen which is like a book about surgery, basically. Okay. Um, And it was really ahead of its time concerning antiseptic techniques. So Paracelsus used the experience he had as an army physician to come up with some more concrete theories for improving wound care. Um, Probably one of the most important things he actually believed was that infection was not part of the natural process of wound healing. Right. Right. At the time, people thought you were supposed to rub things like dung or feathers or gross things into your wound. Yeah, and then it would get really infected, and that was normal. That's what's supposed to happen because the infection is part of the healing process. Right. So we might as well just infected ourselves, and in that's step one of the healing process, right? That was yeah. kind of, that was the thinking.
1: Just stack the odds against ourselves. Not that they thought that, but yeah. right,
0: exactly. They did the opposite thing. Yeah. Yes. Um, and then, and then Paracelsus was like, maybe we should just leave it clean and not rub stuff in it. If you prevent infection, nature will heal the wound all by herself, is what he says. Right. Um, he was also the first to connect goiters with minerals in the drinking water. Okay. He wrote the first medical text on the diseases of minors. Um. That working in mind, not small children. Correct. Yeah. Um, (laughs) His interest in chemistry and biology led to the field of what is now considered toxicology. He's sometimes called the father of toxicology. Okay. There's a famous line in his work Third Defense, and he wrote in the Latin, sola dosis facit vaninum, which is only the dose makes the poison. Um, Because basically he wanted to try inorganic medicines. And people were like though those are toxic right and he's like no 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 no
1: in the right dose they could be toxic right yeah
0: only the dose makes the poison right and that's very famous very, mm-hmm. very famous phrase in medicine and in that's paracelsus
1: yeah I have heard that one before
0: so he also discovered techniques which became standard laboratory practice like concentrating alcohol by freezing it out of solution and he prepared drugs with regards to their purity he actually was watching for that and you know dosing instructions and measuring doses and all things like this um were his ideas um treatment wise he believed that body organs functioned alchemically that is Uh their job was to separate the pure from the impure okay so he believed fasting helped enable the body to just heal itself okay it's the greatest remedy the physician within he says Okay, yeah. Um, he is also credited with reintroducing opium to Western Europe. No. Like I said before, he found opium in Constantinople. He bragged about the benefits of opium and about this tincture of opium and alcohol he made called laudanum. Mm. Now, laudanum yes. became a really big deal in medicine for a few hundred years. maybe it sure did. Maybe, maybe 300, let's yeah. guess. I mean, And why not? What else did people have, honestly? Um, and he was one of the first people to be using it and pushing it. And I say pushing it like, you know, there is a lot of addiction issues that came about later. However, uh, no one has found Paracelsus' complete recipe. And what we know of the ingredients is somewhat different from the 17th century laudanum version. But they probably named it after that one. I
1: would assume so,
0: yeah. Yes. Um, He also invented like a liniment opodeldoc. I don't know why you call it that, a mixture of soap and alcohol, and then they add like camphor and some herbal things to it, like wormwood, Um, and that's the basis for most later versions of liniment that people started to create. Okay. Um, He also published a short pamphlet on syphilis treatment. It was the most comprehensive syphilis information ever written for his time. Yeah. Not not to this day.
1: Mm -hmm. We've trumped it since then. I think so. Yeah.
0: Um, His pamphlet included a clinical description of syphilis, and his beliefs that it could be treated by carefully measured doses of mercury. Don't poison people with mercury. Because sure. they he'll yell at you.
1: Right. But small doses. Yeah. At a certain size.
0: Um, he was also the first to discover that syphilis could be, only could be spread by contact. Okay. Didn't just float through the air and get you.
1: Right. The miasma yeah. didn't get you.
0: Yeah. Well, I don't think, well, but, hmm, I'm actually not sure what he would have thought of the miasma thing. <laughs> no comment. Um, So paracelsus also kind of invented the clinical diagnosis process um, administering specific medications because at this time period they were so heavily reliant on cure-all things. There was never like a I'm going to talk to you as a person and find out stuff about you and make a medicine for you and you should specifically do something different than this man that came in and had the same complaint that works in a different place and has different things going on in his life, right? So he was one of the first to like try to tailor these treatments to people um which people thought was weird um he invented chemical therapy chemical urinalysis he suggested a biochemical theory of digestion he did all these cool things um (laughs) there are some things he did that maybe aren't super great like black hellebore to alleviate arteriosclerosis which probably kind of worked but it was also probably a little toxic
1: okay i Uh, don't actually know what that is but i'm assuming it's a
0: poisonous plant or yeah okay Depend on the dose. Of course. Of course. <laughs> um, he recommended the use of iron for what he called poor blood. Okay. He is credited with the creation of the terms chemistry, gas, and alcohol.
1: Whoa, those are big terms. Okay.
0: Yeah, he's he was kind of like a chemist, kind of. So, he also wrote a book called The Book of the Three Principles, where he argued that all diseases should be named after their cure, which I found amusing. <laughs> okay. For example... Because he decided what the cures were. Okay, so he's saying leprosy is cured by gold, so it should be the gold disease. And epilepsy is treated by vitriol, so it should be called the vitriol disease. Hmm. Yeah.
1: But did he not believe that there were... Like, if you had two diseases that were cured by the same thing, did he believe that they should be cured by different things? Like... If you were to name diseases by what they're cured by and their cure works for multiple diseases, you run into a problem pretty fast.
0: No, because you don't need to know anything, but you have to give them this treatment, apparently. Fine. Which is really contradicts his personalized medicine thing. Yeah. So um, you, you've, you've got me on that one. I don't know. Um, so, anyway, it's not that these treatments were right or anything, but it was kind of a revolutionary idea that you could use chemicals or minerals in medication. Because at the time medicines are herbal, right? Yeah. We you know go get a plant and you know crush it up or cook it and and you eat it and that's it. Um. So the idea that you would go into a lab and make something, um, using chemistry, this new thing apparently, yeah, uh, that was pretty revolutionary. Um. But but then but then we are going to switch 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 pages a little bit here and go to the complementary, uh. Religious beliefs that Paracelsus had.
1: And I'm assuming that he saw them all as very medical. All of the tangential ones we're about to talk about?
0: Well, why don't you listen and tell me what you think? Okay. Of course he did, but. Right. I don't agree. Sure. So um, he did some writings about psychology at some point. He was writing about what they called St. Vitus's dance. Which is a condition where you experience uncontrollable jerking and trembling of your limbs. Now it's called Sydenham's chorea. Okay. Um, But Paracelsus referred to it as an imaginative sickness. And he recommended treatments like abstinence and fasting. Hmm. But if those didn't work, you should try destroying a poppet doll made in the person's image. Which would, of course, destroy the roots of the sickness.
1: Disease voodoo, basically.
0: Yeah, but poppet dolls were a thing.
1: I'm sure they were. They a were. thing that
0: you make in someone's likeness and do things to. Okay. So I had to look that up. I was like, is this a voodoo doll? But it's not voodoo.
1: No. Uh, yeah, I know.
0: Um, so for paracelsus, mastering the chemical and magical cures was crucial to illness and stuff, but it was also Christian duty to him. So he wrote that he felt human beings needed to know what the devil knew, including the kind of knowledge that the devil misapplied. And first on that list was was magic, oh. which he wrote was originated by God, by, but it was misused by demons and necromancers. Wow. So reclaiming magic in the service of humanity to heal and comfort was the physician's calling. Okay. It's pretty deep. Yeah. It's like yeah. an exorcist or something combined with a doctor. I don't know. That's a pretty, like, that's a crazy thing. Um so, yeah, like like I've been kind of mentioning, he was very religious and didn't fit the religion box well mm-hmm. back in the day as far as these views. Um, it's hard to be very religious but not really the kind of religious people say you should be or
1: Yeah, that was almost deadly at times. Right.
0: So, he viewed the universe as a coherent organism that's permeated by a uniting life-giving spirit. So, he thought the universe in its entirety was God. Okay which does not jibe well with the catholic church which necessarily no. keeps the creator and the created separate. Yeah. That's a big deal. Um so some said that he's a protestant because if you're not a catholic you're a protestant.
1: Yeah, there is some um but <laughs> that's going on.
0: definitely not what a protestant believes. Nope. So what most accurately describes these beliefs was probably a religion called hermeticism.
1: I think of that sounds familiar.
0: I think it does. I think it does because it sounded familiar to me too. Like you hear it mentioned in the pages for things. I can't
1: say I know what that is, but I'm getting a better sense.
0: His hermetic religious beliefs were that sickness and health in the body relied upon the harmony of humans and nature. Humans being the microcosm and nature being the macrocosm. So basically what you saw in the larger universe was reflected in a smaller in the person. Okay. Uh, So he used this harmony to justify his belief that humans must have a certain balance of minerals in their bodies um, and that certain illnesses of the body had chemical remedies that could cure them. Sure. Um, Anyways, so as a result of these hermetical ideas, um, Paracelsus developed some homeopathic beliefs. I'm sure. For instance, the idea that like cures like.
1: Ah, Did he, he did he come up with that idea
0: um I couldn't figure out if it was like he came up with it or he was the first one to make it popular but he, okay yeah it was a Progressed big deal that. Yeah. yeah so that's known as the doctrine of signatures mm-hmm it basically says if a plant looks like a part of your body then it can cure that part of your body yeah um,
1: Yay. for example,
0: that's what, like, you know, when we are looking at nature and this harmony between nature and humans, that's what, that's what he was, that's what he was coming from with the Doctrine of Signatures. Um, so for example, the root of the orchid looks like a testicle. Perfect. So orchid root, therefore, heals testicle-associated illnesses. Exactly. Walnuts look like a brain.
1: So they cure your brain.
0: Just headaches and you oh, okay. know, head, head stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um so uh, this belief in treating like with like sometimes to him meant using materials some would consider harmful. For leprosy, he didn't just recommend gold, he promoted oil of antimony, which, you know, antimony is a uh, known poison that people poison people with.
1: But in the right dose. Exactly. Mhm.
0: Another example was his approach to treating the plague. Okay. So The plague of the 16th century is what we're talking about, that iteration, because there's always plagues. Yeah. Um, It was devastating whole towns, as plagues are... Known to do. Want to do, yes. What they're best eh? at. And no one was making a lot of headway in treating it, shockingly. No. None of the things they were trying worked, like strapping chickens to people or stuffing potpourri in some masks and lots of bloodletting. None of that worked. Hmm. Uh, They still tried. They tried. Strap a chicken to your plague boil. It'll go away. Of course. So supposedly, here's a story. He goes to a small town that was being completely overrun by plague, and he notices a lot of the sick people are having um, gastrointestinal issues. Sure. And he reasons that, like, here's light. Mm. so we're some going of... back
1: to the intro here. OK. <laughs> go for it.
0: So some of that gastrointestinal upset should go back inside them. Yeah. But don't worry, because the dose makes the poison after all, right?
1: Uh, yeah. So okay.
0: he makes pills for them out of bread, like rolls up bread into little pills. And each little pill puts a little bit of that patient's, you know, vomit or other mm-hmm. thing that came out of their body, um, you and know. gives it back to them. And gives it back to them. And <laughs> it's said that this worked super well and this town fared better than most did during the plague. But this strikes me as folklore. Yeah. I don't.
1: How nice um, of him.
0: I would describe myself as a skeptic. So this doesn't really count for much. But I don't necessarily believe this story. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, Now on to astrology. Okay. Astrology based medicine.
1: Okay. Let's. Go ahead and do that.
0: Like seemingly everyone back in the day, Paracelsus was also an astrologer.
1: Yeah, makes sense.
0: Um, he believed that there were seven centers in the body that corresponded with the then seven known planets. And these corresponded with seven minerals.
1: Oh, a three-way correspondence.
0: Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> nothing. Okay, at the time, the seven known planets were not all planets. Just, Just saying... Okay. Some people, when they talk about Paracelsus, say the seven heavenly bodies. And some are like, but it's the seven planets. Mm. We just include the moon and the sun.
1: Right. Of course. But not Earth. Well, because Earth's the center.
0: Exactly. We can't see Earth. Yeah. I don't know if that's why, but yeah, there you go. So, so, we have, for instance, and I say for instance, but I'm going to just read them all. So. Okay. If you have a problem with your heart, you call upon the powers of the sun. Right. And you need some gold. Okay. Okay. If you have a problem in your brain, you need moon power and silver. I mean,
1: the colors match up.
0: If you have problems in your liver, you need Jupiter's help and some tin. Tin? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yep. I don't know why you're agreeing like that makes sense. I'm thinking the
1: colors of the metals and the colors colors of the heavenly bodies.
0: Oh, okay. Not like the color of the organ or something. Kidney kidney problems means uh, you need Venus and copper.
1: But like an oxidized copper, I would assume. Okay, yeah, keep going. I don't know.
0: Venus is orange. Copper can be orangey. Yeah. Um, spleen issues uh, lead you to Saturn and lead. Yep. Gallbladder problems, then you need Mars and iron.
1: Okay. I mean, that'd be more of a rusty iron. But that's also why we think Mars is that color. So he got that one right, obviously.
0: Oh, he's got them all right, obviously. Yeah. Lung problems means, get this... Mercury and Mercury,
1: ha. Huh. Well, okay. Those colors don't match up very well in my mind.
0: Mercury and Mercury. Yeah, I'm sorry. How could it sorry. match up any better than that? You're right. It's what perfect. Are you talking about
1: perfect. Stop all mentioning. Um, going back to this.
0: Yeah. So, Paracelsus believed that true anatomy could only be understood once the nourishment for each part of the body was discovered, and he believed that one must therefore know the influence of the stars on those particular body parts. So remember when I said Paracelsus thought diseases were caused by external forces and you all thought maybe he was on to something? Yeah. Okay, well, let's be specific now. Paracelsus thought diseases were caused by poisons from the stars.
1: Hmm, those evil stars.
0: No, but poisons were not necessarily negative because right only dose. dose determines poison. So don't so get too big of
1: a dose of, you know, Venus or something.
0: Because of the whole, like, cures like, if a star or poison caused the disease, then it can be cured by another star or poison in a small amount or something. Okay. Yeah. That makes so much sense. He also believed talismans could cure different illnesses and he would, like, personalize them. Remember when we talked about personalizing your treatments? Um personalize them depending on your illness and your zodiac sign, and he would write your name on it, except for he would write your name in this alphabet that he invented. Hmm. So he invented an alphabet called the Alphabet of the Magi, and it was an angelic alphabet, divinely inspired maybe? I don't know why. It was It was an angelic alphabet according to him. So he'd write your name in his Special. alphabet. Special, yeah. Yeah. You know, personalize your disease, your zodiac sign, all that. Give you a child's move. There you go. Um. Last, but certainly not least, as far as Paracelsus was concerned, he was an alchemist. Okay. So I want to talk about his alchemical beliefs and contributions.
1: And successes?
0: Yes, if you view alchemy the way that they did in the Middle Ages, which was not just transmuting. Turning yeah. into gold. So... Paracelsus, though he disagreed with the four humors, did accept the concept of the four elements, water, air, earth, and fire. Okay, He saw them as the foundation for other properties on which to build. Um, So he often viewed fire as the firmament that sat between air and water in the heavens. And he would use an egg to describe the elements as an analogy, I guess. Um, So in his early model, he would claim that air surrounded the world like an eggshell. The egg white below the shell is like fire. Because it has a type of chaos to it that allows it to hold up earth and water. And then the earth and water make mm-hmm. up a globe, which in his analogy is the yoke. I guess they're together like we are on Earth.
1: Okay. Sure. Uh, combined.
0: Yeah. But then indeed Meteoris, another one of his works, he claims the firmament is the heavens, so I don't know. Who knows? A firmament thing with like the the old Earth models and yeah. that confuses me, to be honest with you, because Flat Earth is not a thing that I believe. <laughs> sure. Um. Anyways, this is what I really want to get to because it's much more interesting. Which is this book he wrote called "A Book on Nymphs, Sylphs, Pygmies, and Salamanders, and on the Other Spirits."
1: That's pretty cool. Yeah.
0: It was part of one of his collections called the Philosophia Magna. It was one of those books that was published after his death. So he wrote the book to quote. Describe the creatures that are outside the cognizance of the light of nature, how they are to be understood, what marvelous works God has created. There is more bliss in describing these divine objects than in describing fencing, court etiquette, cavalry, and other worldly pursuits. So I guess these were divine spirits or whatever. Sounds like it. He describes four elemental beings, which each correspond to an element. Salamanders with fire. That's... Just like in Frozen.
1: Yeah. Right. Okay. Um,
0: gnomes. Also earth? called pygmies, which... Yeah, earth. Okay. Um, the undines, or nymphs, which we would probably recognize as mermaids now. Okay. With water. with water. Yeah. And sylphs, for air.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. So, he used the names, you know, Latin names. Nomus, undina, and sylph, which um, are all thought to first appear in Paracelsus's books. So. Oh, really? Yeah. Though this site I used made it clear that undina is a fairly obvious Latin derivative from the word unda, which means wave. So anyone could have just come up with that. That was just, that's too obvious.
1: Fine. Okay.
0: In, uh, in Demir Meteoris, he says all the elementals collectively are called the Sagani.
1: That sounds familiar too.
0: I don't know. It sounds Japanese to me, but yeah, it's Latin. So, okay. Yeah. Um, so he regarded these elementals not, as spirits really, but he said they're between creatures and spirits and they're generally invisible to mankind, but they have physical and humanoid bodies. They eat, sleep, they wear clothes like humans. He says undines are similar in size to humans and sylphs are rougher, coarser, longer and stronger than humans. Gnomes are short and salamanders are long, narrow and lean. Um, The elements are said to be able to move through their own elements as humans move through the air. Okay. So gnomes, for example, can Could move, move through, through rocks and walls and soil. Um, Silphs were the closest to humans, he said, because they move through the air like we do. While in fire they burn, in water they drown, and in earth they get stuck. Sure. So Paracelsus says each one stays healthy in its particular chaos, but dies in the others.
1: Sure, makes sense. Like, that's their habitat.
0: Yeah. So Paracelsus also believed human beings were composed of three parts. An elemental body, a side real spirit, and an immortal divine soul. And he thought the elementals lacked that immortal soul part. But if they married a human being, which I don't get how because didn't he just say they were mostly invisible to us, then the elemental and its offspring could gain a soul. Uh,
1: Okay.
0: Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. I'm not, okay, this next part, I feel like it's something I've heard a lot, but I don't know if everyone will have. I think some of you will have heard the term humunculus before. Yes. Okay. So the term homunculus first appears in the alchemical writings of Paracelsus. If you haven't heard it before, the word is Latin for little man. And don't interrupt me till I'm done. In this case, it refers to basically the concept of a miniature but fully formed human. There was a scientific theory for a while that there were homunculi inside the egg or the sperm, depending on who you ask, but usually the sperm. Okay, Um, And that's how babies are made, right? There was a miniature, very, 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 very small, fully formed person in that sperm. It goes into the egg. and Because usually people thought the eggs were useless because women were useless, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So the egg is just there maybe to feed it. But the whole thing is in the sperm. Yeah. It goes in the egg, and then it just grows, grows to scale. Like, just it just grows, and then that's your baby. Um, the word humunculus can also refer now to, like, these little statues. They're usually clay statues. There's a few other things people sometimes use humunculus to mean just, like, a miniature person. But that's not what Paracelsus was talking about, and that's not the word he coined. He coined humunculus about these little fully formed... Yeah. Human beings. Because um, we really didn't understand where babies came from. No. We were like, there's probably an egg in sperm involved. And...
1: No, I might be wrong, but I had an impression that homunculus uh, was like a miniature human vessel without a soul. And that that makes me think that in if that applies here, that at some point the homunculus is infused with a soul during this process.
0: I mean, that sounds like we're delving into religion here. Yeah. I don't know. Something like uh something about divinity being I don't I don't know. fetuses. I don't, I don't really want to sure. <laughs> I don't really want to get into this, but um that might be a religious thing. I wanted to read a passage from his book De Natura Rerum in 1537 where he outlines his method for creating humanculi. Okay. Okay. Are you ready? Well, if he believes it's
1: in sperm, then all the man has to do is just, like, sit around. He's being successful, like, 24-7.
0: Okay. Here's the quote. Okay. That the sperm of a man be putrefied by itself in a sealed cucurbit, which I don't know what that is, for 40 days with the highest degree of putrefaction in a horse's womb, or at least so long that it comes to life and moves itself and stirs, which is easily observed. Okay, there's more yes. to this quote, but what kind oh. of piles of semen is he watching that move by themselves? That is really creeping me out right now. Yeah. Um, quote, After this time, it will look somewhat like a man, but transparent without a body. If after this it be fed wisely with the arcanum of human blood, and be nourished for up to 40 weeks, and be kept in the even heat of the horse's womb, A living human child grows therefrom, with all its members like another child, which is born of a woman, but much smaller. Nightmares, basically. Right? Yeah. But, like, I feel like, credit to the podcast Sawbones here, where the co-host is always saying, but didn't someone just try it, and it didn't work, and that's ridiculous, so why didn't that just fall out of favor? Like, if someone just tried this weird, creepy thing... Hmm it's quite obvious this is not going to work.
1: I think it might just be too odd and creepy for anyone to try.
0: I don't know. I've read a lot of weird stuff people did.
1: Uh, A lot of weird
0: stuff. (laughs) Anyways, the fully grown Humunculus was supposed to be greatly skilled in art and can create giants, dwarves, and other marvels as, quote, through art they are born and therefore art is embodied and inborn in them and they need learn it from no one. I don't know what giant dwarves and whatever have to do with art, but they use art differently back then. Clearly, Yep. So his other alchemical thoughts that he talked about, he argued human life could be created through alchemy. Believed in the long sought after elixir vitae as yep. a means of infinitely prolonging life, free from disease. That seemed to be definitely the major goal of alchemy in the Middle Ages. Totally. Not so much transmutation, but this, you know, life the elixir of life. Yep. Yeah. Um. So. Paracelsus wrote a lot of books about medicine and, and like I was kind of saying most of his work or lots of his work was published posthumously um, when people finally started kind of collecting it all over Europe and, and publishing it. Um, and then people began to use it as a basis for a new medical theory to take on like Hippocrates and it was called Paracelsianism. So um, there's this group of physicians that are going around uprooting the you know established medical knowledge. And they're saying, we don't need to read books about medicine to be doctors. We just need to look at the natural world. Uh, they also didn't need to know anatomy. That was that was part of their movement. You don't need to know anatomy. You did need to know chemistry. They thought that was important. Sure, okay. Um, another thing that was important to the Paracelsians, um, and clearly Paracelsus, we talked about it a little bit, was religion. Paracelsianism was, for some reason, a, a religious movement.
1: Okay, fine.
0: Um. Because Paracelsus's approach to science was so heavily influenced by his religious beliefs, I guess, right? He thought science and religion were inseparable. Scientific discovery was a direct message from God. Um, He believed it was mankind's divine duty to uncover and understand all of God's works, basically. Yep. so they thought if a person who doesn't believe in God became a physician, then he would not... He, because, you know, mm. we're in the 1500s right now. Yep. He would not have standing in God's eyes and would not succeed in his work because he did not practice in his name. So becoming an effective physician to the Paracelsians meant faith in God. So, you know, go read your Bible. You can be a doctor. But don't have to read any medical books.
1: Sounds like a good basis for medicine.
0: <laughs> um, Paracelsus did, though, encourage... Physicians to always practice self-improvement and humility and philosophy. And I'm really confused about that because it didn't sound like he practiced much humility. So Maybe I that's like him looking back on preach. his life
1: being like, this would have been way easier if I wasn't kicked out of every place. Do
0: you think people like that really have those thoughts? I
1: don't know. Maybe.
0: Yeah, maybe. Okay, so um, lastly, I want to talk about some more alchemy called Spagyria which is a Greek word, so I think I'm saying it right because I looked it up. It's kind of like how you say gyro and not a gyro. Yeah. Um, Anyways. It's also called spagyric alchemy. It's a method developed by Paracelsus and the Paracelsians, which was thought to improve the efficacy of medicines by separating them into their primordial elements and then recombining them.
1: Mm -hmm. So... Why would you recompile?
0: Okay. I'll try to explain, but it probably won't answer your questions because it probably doesn't make sense. Sure. Uh, so, Paracelsus did a lot of chemistry. So, he then adopts this idea of tripartite nature of medicine, I guess. So, he thought the nature of medicines were composed, they're all composed of the tria prima, the three primes, a combustible element of a fluid and changeable element, and a solid, permanent element.
1: Oh, it's like the phases of matter.
0: Kind of a combustible element in his mind was sulfur. A fluid and changeable element was mercury, and a solid, permanent element permanent element was salt. He thought sulfur, mercury, and salt made up all medicine. I think okay, something like that. Um, <laughs> so not the states of matter. <laughs> no. He also believed that the principles contained the poisons contributing to all diseases. But it's okay, because the dose makes the poison. Right. So, each disease has three separate cures, depending on how it was afflicted. Sulfur, mercury, or salt. I know earlier he said something about five cures. This guy is not consistent. Okay, fine. Okay. Um, so, that all kind of comes from medieval alchemy. Sulfur, salt, mercury were a big deal in, in alchemy. Um, so, the main thing that Paracelsus wanted to do was, like, purify these three elements. Yeah. So, he actually wrote, by the way, for all that fumes and disappears in vapors is mercury. And all that burns and is consumed is sulfur. And all that is ashes is also salt. So, he decided a so fire see- was his big example of the three... The Tria Prima.
1: Okay. I mean, he does seem like he's using them as classifications of matter or or something. Like, it doesn't sound like he's actually saying that, Uh, like, ash isn't salt. I don't know. I'm struggling to uh, (laughs) comprehend here. How about you just keep going?
0: Like I said, I don't know if it makes sense, but... um, So he believed that mercury, sulfur, and salt were a good explanation for the nature of medicine because each of those properties existed in in many forms, basically. One of the forms is that they define the human identity. Salt represents the body, for some reason. Mercury represents the spirit. um, And sulfur represents the soul. And I had to look up what the difference exactly between a spirit and a soul are. So, the description he gave is a spirit is the imagination, moral judgment, and higher mental faculties, and the soul is the emotions and desires. Okay. I don't know how you separate emotions and imaginations and desires. But, anyways, he did. Um, so, if you understand the chemical nature of the Tria Prima, you could discover the means of curing disease. So, Paracelsian physicians believe the Spahiric method separated and purified the Tria Prima, which they thought were the medically beneficial ingredients in anything. Yeah. And from there, they could recombine them, turning even some toxic things into medicines. Sure. So, I mean, that's, that's not far off.
1: No, you're, you're doing purification of your ingredients and then you're carefully,
0: you know, if they actually knew what they were after in a plant, they could get the thing that would help and not the part of the plant that was toxic. Like that's a good idea. They just weren't there yet. Sure. Um, so anyways, they basically, what they would do is so the Heric alchemy is like, they would like burn a plant. Then they ferment and distill the ashes and then extract all the non-combustible minerals that were left behind. Okay. And they think that those are the purified things. And then, you know, those minerals you would use to make medicines.
1: Actually, yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. So the Paracelsians really led to widespread use of chemistry and medical treatments and... You know, gave people the idea to use minerals, and metals. Um, so you can see how Paracelsus and Paracelsians kind of influenced the kind of pharmacological work that we do today, with some of their ideas. Sure, and definitely not the other ones. <laughs> right? Not even no. But it's interesting, right? It He's sure like is. Interesting person that had a lot of beliefs. Um, the last little thing. I just have a few fun facts. have okay. Fun facts. Uh, He was probably the first to name the element zinc in about 1526 because of the sharp pointed appearance of its crystals after it was smelted. So the word Zinke is the German word for pointed.
1: Cool. Yeah.
0: Um, Robert Browning wrote a long poem based on the life of Paracelsus called Paracelsus. Oh. Published in 1835. Shocking name. Um, Paracelsus is apparently one of the inspirations from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And Percy Shelley actually said Paracelsus was one of his favorite authors. Okay. So there are some video game characters named after Paracelsus. Definitely. There was a few, and I just chose... Well, there was more than this, and I just chose a few of them, is what I'm trying to say. So there was a character in Full Metal Alchemist named Van Hohenheim. Yeah. Who was named after Paracelsus. It has the word alchemist in it, so that kind of seems appropriate to me.
1: Well, Full Metal, Full Metal Alchemist is a very successful anime series and I think it was adapted to video games at some point too
0: so um, there is a series called Guilty Gear yeah and there is a character called ABA and she is a homunculus sure and in the series Paracelsus is also a character he is a giant living demon axe and he is described in the game quote as ABA's friend fighting partner and reluctant spouse Sure. Apparently the axe used to have a different name, and then ABA transformed it into a weird living axe and named it Paracelsus, and he's not exactly okay with the deal. Anyways, it's a kind of complicated and weird-sounding thing. Yeah. So, yeah. It's a
1: game series I've never played, just heard of, so interesting.
0: There's that. Um, in the games Darkest Dungeon and Darkest Dungeon 2, mm-hmm. there's a Plague Doctor character named Paracelsus. Yeah. I hope he doesn't make you eat poop.
1: I don't think so. He mostly throws poisonous bombs at, I think, the middle row.
0: Are you sure they're poison?
1: Uh, I mean, the dose appears to be high enough.
0: Oh, okay. Um, there's lots of plays and novels and stuff about him. They're mostly German. No surprise there. Uh, and uh, I do want to say that most of his prescriptions have not made it to, to this day and age. But there are a few. Arsenic is still used to kill certain par- parasites that he recommended. Um, for a long time, antimony was, from his suggestion, used, and it was actually used to, well, historical literature says, it cure Louis the Fourteenth. Who really knows? But it got really popular after that, as everything did when it yeah. came to the Louis, you know. Yeah,
1: the royal family, it became very fashionable. Yeah. Uh,
0: those are all my fun facts. I'm very done fun. talking about Paracelsus. Okie dokie. Philippus Aureolus. Oh, can I remember the whole thing? Uh, Theo bombassus Bombastis, von oh, Something like that. Still pretty good. I didn't want to scroll all the way back to the top just to read it again. <laughs> Makes sense. Um, so housekeeping items are that we have an email address that I would, you know, I love to hear from people about anything. Topic suggestion or a uh, critique. Maybe you could tell me things i got wrong because again i'm not an expert sure i'm just a person who tries to do good research on the internet which is tough <laughs> um so our email address is teachme something for that is the number at gmail.com um another housekeeping note is that it is the holiday season so happy holidays to everybody and i think i will take one extra week to yeah. write the next episode so we will be back January the 9th. Yes. I mean, late at night on the 9th. Could be the 10th for a lot of people. Yeah.
1: 2024.
0: Yeah. hmm 2024 is For all those people listening years
1: from now. Catch you expecting... next time. Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's true. That happens to me. I listen to podcasts and it's like the middle of a pandemic on the podcast. And yep. I'm like, oh, yeah, that. <laughs> hmm mm-hmm. So I want to say thank you to everybody for listening to this episode of Teach Me Something. Once again, I'm Melissa.
1: And I'm Everett.
0: And I hope you learned something new.